What is the remedy for a fallen world? What do we need? Like, what is the greatest need that we have on a daily basis? We're thinking about worldview. And we talked about these different worldviews, and one of them we talked about was modernity. And modernity was going to change the world through what? Through progress. Modernity was going to change the world through progress. Civilization was going to become more and more advanced, and it was going to become a what? A better place to live. Technology advanced. We created more stuff. I'm not saying that all the technology that, was, that, was, that advanced was bad, but we began to consume more and more products and more and more stuff and more and more things that were going to what? Make our life better, easier, more comfortable, things that we need. David Wells writes in 1970s, there was a marriage between consumerism and self-improvement. And so we see this flood of self-help books that are going to help us do what? They're going to help us live better. They're going to help us be our best selves. And, and, And society began to throw off the rules and the traditions of our parents and began to detach ourselves from our history. Traditional values like thrift and self-denial and looking to God's Word and all of those things, their jettisons as Americans begin more and more and more to live for who? For me. Media outlets cater to what I need. Commercials tell me what I need. Wells writes, at the heart of modern consuming is autonomous, imaginative pleasure-seeking. So what we think we need is is that I'm not getting enough. I'm not getting enough stuff. I'm not getting enough time off. I'm not getting enough vacation. I, I really just need to self-care. That's what I need. And in our self-serving, self-care uh, society, we've reasoned the concept of sin down to something that we're really just kind of uneasy about. It's just something that's kind of icky. It's kind of awkward. Evil's not a part of our daily vocabulary. Wells, it's interesting in his book that one of my friends, another pastor here in Alaska, bought me. He says, after September 11th, there was a brief time in which we used the word evil again. But now we've kind of you know, relegated that to the side again, and it's just something we're uneasy about. And even in the church, we retreat into our cozy, self-made habitats of pleasure where we seek stuff over holiness, where we seek comfort over mortification of sin. Even in the American church, notice the blatant refusal to follow God's instruction and even mention sin. Some of you have told me about churches you've been at the past where they're preaching through books of the Bible and they get to a hard one and they just skip it like it's not even there and go on to the next one without even mentioning why. We give lip service sometimes to, 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 to sin and then we turn around and ignore what God says about it. Even in conservative churches, we rail about following God's word and then turn around and Monday through Saturday, do something different. Why do I mention all this? Because I want you to notice the similarities of our self-serving culture and the similarities of the self-serving characters in today's story. This week, this sermon matters for you because fallen humanity is searching for a fix, but we're grasping at the wrong things. This sermon matters for you because the rejection of God's instruction and a turning to depravity has consequences. 
Last week we saw that God's good creation was infected with sin because of the rebellion of one man, the man Adam. God created the world and it was perfect, and he gives Adam these directives and prohibitions. And then the ancient serpent tempts our first parents and they give in. And they ignore God's directives and they ignore his prohibitions. Adam ignores instruction and rebels against his creator and we see the first sin enter the world. Something that's had grave consequences for us. Remember sin, our definition of terms here, sin is the lack of conformity to God's instruction. And it's not merely an act, but it is an act, but it's also in our, our motivation, in our, in our heart, in our thoughts, in our feelings. Original sin means that from the fall, all human beings are marked with sin from birth. So our inner sinfulness that we are born with is the root of our actual sins that we commit in thought and deed and, and feeling. And it all comes from our first father, what Jonathan Edwards calls extended pollution. I don't remember which one of the songs we sing. It talks about the polluted, our polluted lives. Uh, Jonathan Edwards would agree with that. He says original sin is extended pollution from our first parent, Adam. And then we have total depravity, which means there's no part of our existence that is untouched by sin. It's not that we are as sinful as we can be, but that there's no part of me, there's no part of my mind, my heart, my will, my affection that is untouched by sin. And today we see the aftermath of Adam's sin. This week we are going to see that mankind spirals out of control in the wake of original sin. So if you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 22. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 2, we read, The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way of the tree of life, to the tree of life. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, you will never again, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me day from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became a builder of the city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Arad was born to Enoch. Arad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Adah and the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the first of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal, the first of all who played the lyre and the flute. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be seventy-seven times. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray in the next few minutes that you would give us wisdom. Give me strength and knowledge even now to preach your word. God, guard my mouth that I would not say anything unprofitable for your people, and God, guard their ears, that if I would, it would fall away from them. God, glorify yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Genesis 4, as mankind multiplies, so does his sin. We find five elements of depravity in this passage. Depravity leads to alienation from God. Depravity leads to jealousy and division. Depravity leads to anger and murder. Depravity leads to fear and pain. And depravity leads to bold insurrection. Now, as we think about our worldview, which is foundational to our daily lives, we are looking at the foundational book of the Bible, Genesis. And remember, a worldview is the lens through which we interpret everything around us. Like we mentioned last week, if someone steals, if I'm at a coffee shop and I watch someone steal Kenan's wallet, I don't have to sit and think, how should I process this? I know immediately a crime has been committed. You shouldn't steal people's wallets. That's part of our worldview. And our worldview has five elements that every worldview has to answer. Our theology, who is God? 
Is there a God? Even an atheist has to answer, is there a God? We have a cosmology. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there a, a universe around us? Anthropology, who is man? Epistemology, how do we know things? How do we, how do we learn things? And ethics, are there boundaries to our conduct? Or can we just do whatever we want? If there are boundaries, where are they? And we see from last week that Adam left those boundaries. He was given prohibitions by God, and he did not follow them. And we see that from his breaking of those boundaries, there are consequences today. The first thing we see is that depravity leads to alienation from God. Look with me back at verse chapter 3 and verse 22. The Lord God says, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve have broken God's law. Adam is held responsible as the man and they are cast out of the garden. And God posts this cherubim, this, this angel with a flaming sword at the, at, the, at the entrance of the garden so that they cannot get to the tree of life and eat and live forever, we read. It's interesting that Adam was called to guard the garden, right? Like that was his directive, to guard the garden. And now the garden is being guarded from him by a cherubim, by one of God's servants and they are cast out from this direct communion with god because we know from other places in the bible that sin friends sin cannot stand in god's presence it leads to alienation and therefore our parents our first parents are cast out but this sin also led to division among each other look with me at verse one of chapter four we see that depravity leads to jealousy and division the man was intimate with his wife. This is Adam. Adam's intimate with his wife, and, con- and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And, and she says, I have a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock, in their fat portions. The Lord had regard to Abel for his offering, but he did not have regard to Cain in his offering. Cain was furious. He looked despondent. So the first thing we see here is that, one, God fulfills his promise to Adam and Eve, right? Like Eve bore children. Remember we saw last week that she's going to bear children through toil, right? And at first we look at that and, you know, any of the ladies that have given birth say, doggone it, Eve, right? Like, but it's going to be through toil, but there's also blessing in that in that she will have children. And so this promise is fulfilled and Eve is the mother of all living. That's what her, her name means. And Adam and Eve have these two boys that we read, Cain and Abel. But the optimism here quickly grows dark. Because of original sin, this depravity that comes from Adam is extended to his descendants. Remember that we see here that when Cain and Abel are born, they don't get to go back into the garden, right? right? They didn't commit the sin. 
Adam and Eve did. They're kicked out. That makes sense. But why didn't Cain and Abel get to go back? Well, it's that extended pollution Edwards is talking about, right? It goes to his descendants. And we see that here in the passage. And we have Cain, right? He's a vegetable farmer. So he's plowing up the ground. He's, he's planting tomatoes. He's planting carrots. And then we have Abel, who's a herdsman. He has sheep. And Cain and Abel, they bring their sacrifices to God. That sounds good, right? Like both of them are bringing sacrifices to God. We don't have the Mosaic law yet, but they're bringing a sacrifice of what they have to God. And Abel brings some of the firstborn of his flock. We read that Cain brings some of the produce he grew. Pay attention to the wording there, right? Like words matter. Abel brings some of the firstborn of his flock. But we read that Cain just brings some of his produce, not the first fruit, not the first stuff that grew up. And the Lord accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And and Cain grows jealous and he's angry at his brother. Why didn't God accept Cain's sacrifice? Maybe you've read this before and you said, it doesn't seem very fair. Look, they're both giving to God. Why, Why not Cain? Did Cain get a raw deal here? Well, some people have said, well, it's not a blood sacrifice, right? Like, it's not, it's not blood. And we know that, you know, uh, the atonement only comes through the shedding of blood. But the Mosaic law hadn't come yet. And even when it does, there's a grain offering in the Mosaic law. So I don't think that's it. Why didn't, Cain accept, why didn't God accept Cain's sacrifice? Well, it's there in the passage, isn't it? Cain brought some of his produce, but Abel brought first fruits, first flock. Abel brought the best in the first of his flock and gave it to God. Cain just brought some of his stuff. Cain checked the box. Abel sacrificed. John Calvin wrote that God does not change. God has never been just okay with merely external worship that's me paraphrasing i don't think john calvin's ever said just okay but god has never been just okay with external worship hosea 6 6 says i desire faithful love not sacrifice the knowledge of god rather than burnt offerings and we see this theme throughout the whole bible right people who claim to be god's people Yet their hearts are far from God. We saw that in Malachi a couple years ago. We saw that in Amos last year. They're just checking the box. And Cain's attitude here, friends, is a clarion call for us to evaluate our motives. Right? It's a call for me to evaluate my motives. Am I preaching this morning for recognition? Like, do I want people to think I'm a good guy or that I'm learned? Do I want people to think that I'm eloquent? Or am I spending my time throughout the week studying to see God's church built up? What about you? Do you do things to get recognition? In their deacon study this week, it was, I wish I'd have brought the book up with, with me this morning, just read from it. The, the final chapter was golden. And it talked about the deacons that were training who are going to be servants of this church that are going to serve the physical needs. And it says in it, if you're serving to get recognition you're going to be let down. And you're wrong. It doesn't say it that way. Again, that's my paraphrase. 
But if I'm just doing things, if I'm just, if Johanna is just doing hospitality because she wants everybody to say, oh, how great Johanna is, right? That's not honoring the Lord. If I'm, if I'm serving so that people will say how great I am doing, then I don't have the same heart of our Lord who washed the feet of ungrateful sinners. Do we do things so that people will like us or to honor God? Do we do things to be flattered? Because Cain isn't doing things for the right reason. And here we see that God's response has nothing to do with the gift, but the heart of the giver. Cain's heart is not for God, but Cain's heart is for Cain. And he's not merely jealous, he's furious. Depravity leads to anger and murder. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So God comes to Cain and says, why are you mad? Why are you acting like this? Why, Literally, why do you burn exceedingly? Like, why are you hot under the collar? Why is your face downcast? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? If your heart's in the right place, if you're bringing your offering for the right reason, won't it be accepted? He says, sin wants to have mastery over you. It's like, a, like an animal crouching at the door, ready to pounce. Ken Matthews says, sin is likened to an animal crouching at the door at bay, but he's ready to come alive if stirred. And Cain is urged to repent, to turn from his sin, to, to, to rule over his sin, but rather than deal with it, he lets it fester. He feeds it. And his anger finally boils over into murder. Look with me at verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacks his brother Abel and kills him. Cain lured his brother out into the field. Cain lures Abel out into a field and kills him. Friends, this is not just depravity. This is calculated depravity. This is calculated depravity murder. If you are one of the ones that tend to get overly optimistic about the nature of man, if you're one that struggles with the idea, well, you know, all men are pretty, pretty much good. All people are pretty much good. If we, if we could do these things, the, the world would be a better place. Remember this, that the first man born into the world killed the second. The first death that Adam and Eve had to witness and deal with, maybe not witness with their eyes, but had to deal with as a consequence for their sin was their own son. You know, the word does not change, but I think as a parent, you read that with different eyes. Like, I think I'd almost rather God kill me on the spot for my sin than to watch my two boys, one kill the other, and the other become an outcast. When I was... Right out of high school, I worked at a lumberyard, and um, we had a family that was connected to our lumberyard. One of the guys worked there, and one of the workers killed his brother one night over a pack of cigarettes. A guy I worked with stabbed him in the heart with a kitchen knife. And that poor mother had to deal with one son going to prison and another in the grave, and that's Adam and Eve right here. 
Because of a consequence of their sin, Cain killed his brother in jealousy. But this act did not have the desired consequences because this depravity led to fear and pain. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So just like his father, Adam, God comes to Cain and questions him. He calls him to account, but Cain ups the ante. Like he makes the depravity worse than his father, Adam, because he lies about it. He lies to God who sees everything and says, I don't know where where Abel's at. Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from your ground. Think about that for a minute. Like in this story, Abel never speaks. I'm sure he spoke, but we don't have that in the Bible. He never speaks in the Bible, but God says his blood cries out from the ground, crying out from this depravity. Look with me at verse 11. What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood that you have shed. If you work the ground, you will never again, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must become, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Just as Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, Cain is now driven from the ground. He is driven from the ground that he used to work. And he goes to pieces and he cries out, this is too much, God. This is more punishment than I can bear. I'll be a wanderer. People will find me and they'll just kill me. And as a side note, people have asked, you know, who's going to kill Cain, right? Because in the narrative, we only really know about four people in the world, right? And so people say, well, clearly that means there must have been other hominids around and, you know, all kinds of weird stuff, they say. But we have to remember a few things. One, they're telling a story. We're not getting all the details. In Genesis 5-4, we read that Adam begot sons and daughters, and so undoubtedly there were some other people prior to Seth that Adam and Eve bore, right? Like uh, Cain has a wife. Where did she come from? So there are people that are coming out from Adam and Eve that we just don't know about in the story because Adam is called to what? Fill the earth and multiply. We also have to remember that people lived longer back then. They're living like hundreds of years. So we don't know the exact amount of time. And Cain knows his father is to have more children and to multiply. So there could be even future people that he's worried about. So it's not really a, 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 a hole in the plot as people want to make it out to be. But what we see is that Cain is banished and he goes to pieces and, and he's, he's upset, but he's not upset out of remorse. He's not upset out of repentance, but out of self-pity. Well, I'm just going to be a wanderer and people are going to kill me. We know this kind of behavior. We know the person who's upset because they got caught, not upset over what they did. 
This is the person that's distraught that they are being punished. This is high school Alan McRoy that got caught skipping class. It doesn't really care that he skipped class, but he's upset that he's going to be in detention. This is the person who's, who's sad about their crime, but not sad about their victims. We don't hear him saying, my poor brother Abel that I slew. We hear him saying, oh my poor Cain, woe is me. Adam sinned. Now we see Cain amplifying that sin by murdering and lying. But as the OxyClean guy says, wait, there's more. Depravity leads to bold insurrection. Look with me at verse 17. So Cain is intimate with his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became a builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. And Urad was born to Enoch. Urad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mathushael, and Mathushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Adah and the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the first of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal. He was the first of all to play the lyre and the flute. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. So Cain goes out and he begins to have children. It's funny because, I don't say it's funny, but it's interesting that Calvin said that uh, Cain must have already been married um, to one of Adam and Eve's daughters because who would want to marry a guy that killed their brother? But whether that's true or not, or just, or just Calvin theorizing there, either way, we see that Cain begins to have children, and we trace his family line, and we learn about the foundation of cities, and we learn about you know Jubal, this first guy to make musical instruments and play them, and, and Tubal Cain, he's the first metal worker, right? So he's the first smitty, I guess, of history. And it's interesting that Cain is a part of his name, which many have said means he probably is also the first person to make the swords that people kill others with. So not only is he making plows, but he's making weapons of of destruction as well. But most importantly, we meet Cain's grandson, Lamech. We meet this guy, Lamech. And there's two things about Lamech that just sort of exemplify depravity. First, he ignores God's design for marriage and takes two wives. So rather than one man and one woman becoming one flesh, leaving their father and mother and becoming one flesh together, as we saw in Genesis 2, We have Lamech taking two wives. We talk about ethics. The Bible speaks to our ethics. Lamech didn't listen to God's word. He becomes polygamous. Calvin says, whether pride or lust, Lamech violates God's sacred law of marriage, which was designed between one man and one woman, not one man and two women, not one man and one man, Not one woman and one woman, but God's design, right, friends, is one man and one woman leave their father and mother, cling to one another, and they become one flesh. So Lamech ignores that, but then along with his sexual rebellion, he also boasts of killing other image bearers. This is called the Song of the Sword. 
uh, is, is what it's known as. And he's, he's saying, pay attention to me, wives, for I kill young men. I killed another man for wounding me. So he's bragging about all these guys he's killed. And he says, you know what? If this is Cain's punishment, mine is way up here. If his is seven times, mine's 77 times. Bragging about his depravity. So in, in, in short order, and we're only four chapters into the Bible, we see that we go from, from Adam failing to keep God's command in the garden to Adam's son committing the first murder and then lying to his creator about it to Lamech boasting about his depravity and blatantly rebelling against the creator of the universe. As man multiplies, so does depravity. Rebellion. Sin. Like a plane spiraling towards the ground, picking up speed, spiraling faster, we see fallen humanity just giving in to depravity and spiraling into it. So how should we think about it? How should we, in our worldview, think about depravity? Well, as part of our anthropology, we must understand that it is part of fallen man. It's not part of God's design. That's why Christ is the the exemplification of humanity. He is true humanity. He is faithful to His Father. But in fallen humanity, we are born dead in sin. And in 2024, we are inundated with worldview elements through media, through culture, through tradition that tell us what we need. There are issues in the world. There are issues in your life. We look at this and say, we have issues. What do we need? Well, we need more self-help. We need more pleasure. We need more of a better image. I need a better image of me. That's what I need to feel better every day. And as we swim through this sea of bad ideas, how do we remain faithful to God? How do we remain faithful to God as we swim through this sea of worldview? Well, the first thing this morning that I think we see from the passage, three things. The first thing is we must always remember that sin began with questioning God's Word. Depravity began with questioning God's Word. Friends, God's Word is perfect. I'm going to say it again because that gets questioned a lot. God's Word is perfect. It is without error. Because it is from God. I think we say God's Word so much that we forget that. It's not Alan McElroy's word. It's not Keenan Hurst's word. It's not Guy Mickle's word. It's not Jerry Holderman's word. It's God's word, and it is perfect. It has been preserved by him. It is given from him. And we saw with Adam that God's instruction was first questioned, and then Eve misrepresented it, and then it was blatantly ignored. So sin began with neglecting God's instruction, friends. God's word speaks to all of our life. Like, God's Word is not just the spiritual things, and in the practical everyday things I need to get from somewhere else. But God's Word tells us how to live our lives, how our marriages should be, how our relationships would be, how we make up with one another, when we should separate from one another, how I should spend my time, how I should spend my money. God's Word handles it all. And God's Word has the authority to tell us how to live our lives. God's Word has the authority to tell us how to live our lives. God's Word has authority over my marriage. God's Word has authority over my money. 
And God's word has authority over how I spend my time. Think about those first fruits. Right? What was the issue with Cain and Abel? First fruits. How am I spending my time? How am I spending my money? How am I spending whatever I have? It all belongs to God. Will I honor Him with it? With God's Word, we must remember that all knowledge must be tested by God's Word. We're still thinking about questioning God's Word here. We need to remember that everything we see throughout the day needs to be tested through the filter of God's Word. Not through worldly wisdom. All of our wisdom is tested through God's Word. All of our feelings are tested through God's Word. All of our perceived spiritual leadings must be tested through that which we know is from God. Because the Spirit will not lead you against what He has already given. So, it's one of the most aggravating things when I talk even to other pastors who are a more charismatic bent. And I'll say something about, well, you know, in Romans it says this, and they say, well, yes, but God told me yesterday. Well, I don't know if God told you that or not. But I know what he said here. And this is Theopneustos. It is breathed out by him. So all spiritual leadings, all wisdom, all of those things must be tested against the standard that is God's Word because it is eternal. When I'm in the grave in just a few short breaths, God's Word will endure. When modernity is forgotten, God's Word will endure. When postmodernity, when Marxism or whatever comes after it, whatever kind of weird worldview comes along, God's Word will stand sure and firm. It is the standard, my friends. Sin began with questioning that which is eternal from the eternal one. But second, we must remember that in God's Word, He has given us, His creation, a standard of conduct. A standard of conduct. Right? This speaks to our ethics and our epistemology. Sin is a rejection or the lack of conformity to God's law. I am not the sole judge of my conduct. I don't just do what feels right. God's law judges my conduct. Modernity says that there are no moral values outside of social constructs. So, uh, as we evolved as human beings, uh, modernity would say we, we establish this value system over time, and it's really not that important. It's just something we come up with. Modernity believes the only truth that can be found is through empirical methods, so the scientific method. And God's Word is a standard of knowledge, to modernity, that's nonsense. The idea that revelation is the standard of knowledge to the modern mind is nonsense. Yet for a believer, the Bible reminds us that our wisdom is not found in the age and it is not found in man, but in God's eternal, inerrant word. First Corinthians and Second Timothy are clear. Postmodernity believes there are no standards. You create your own truth. You have your own value system. No value system is better than another one. Remember we saw that in modernity a couple weeks ago that sexual morality is considered abuse. So in a postmodern world, and we see this in the culture around us, if we say this is one man and one woman, that is the standard for marriage. Well, that's abuse. But Colossians 3 says, it commands the believer to set his or her mind on the things that are above and to put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed because they are idolatry. Postmodernity's claims that sexual morality is abuse does not jive with God's Word. Marxism has contempt for the very concept of sin and morality. 
in Marxism, depravity is actually allowed in class struggle. Do you believe you're being oppressed? Well, then you need to flatten your oppressor. In Marxism, when we realize that we are somehow experiencing loss or alienation, we should change our situation through rebellion so we can flip over cop cars and defecate on them. That's okay. We can burn down towns and villages. We can do whatever we want if we think we are being oppressed. But what does the Bible say? Christ tells us that if a Roman soldier compels us to carry his pack a mile, we're to go two with him. If a Roman soldier says, hey, you guy, carry my pack a mile, we're to take it an extra, not burn down the village. That's God's directive. And God's given us a standard of conduct. And Colossians 2.80 reminds us that we are to take care that no one takes us captive through human philosophy or tradition. That's modernity, that's post-modernity, that's Marxism, that's any worldview outside of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, he reminds us to take every thought captive to Christ. Total depravity means we can't follow our hearts, but we must lead our hearts by God's perfect, inerrant word. Finally, understand that the root of depravity is not a problem you can fix on your own. The root of depravity is not a problem you can fix on your own. Sin has marred the image of God, though not removed it. Sin makes fallen man unable to come to God on his own. We can never be good enough. We can never pull ourselves up by our bootstraps enough. The fall of man damaged our communion with God. The image of God within us is marred but not lost, but it also means that the sensus divinitatis is broken. That means that we have a sense of divinity. We have a sense, every human being has a sense that there is a God, but that that is broken. We know there is a God deep down, but we do not know God. And so we worship the wrong things. We worship ourselves. We worship rock stars. We worship the idols that the kids were learning about this morning. We worship crystals. We go by crystals and pray to them. We worship everything but God. Our original sin damns us to hell, and total depravity wreaks havoc on our existence. So what is the answer? What do we do? The answer can be found in Ephesians 2. Would you turn with me? Ephesians 2. We'll start in verse 1. And what we see as we, as we look at this passage is that Ephesians, the first three verses here, they tell us already, everything we've already read in Genesis Starting in verse 1, we see, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. From our first father Adam, we are dead in sin. We are born that way. And the wages of sin is death. Notice that Paul doesn't say, Hey, you were born basically good. You just have a little ickiness in your life you need to get rid of. He said, you are born dead in sin. You have extended pollution from Adam. You are born guilty. And these actual sins stem from your nature. Look at verse 2. And you were born dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's the devil. The spirit now working in all the disobedient. 
So we have this sin nature, but we also do sins. We walk in the depravity. Christian, you once walked according to the ways of the world. A slave to sin. Doing sinful things. Walking according to the ways of the devil. Walking to the disobedience. We say, no, pastor, I was saved at seven years old at First Baptist County seat somewhere. And I sang in the choir when I was a kid. And I never ever walked in those sins. I say baloney because the Bible says baloney. I don't care if you were the most perfect choir girl or choir boy in the world. When you stole your brother's candy and lied to your parents about it, you're doing the same thing Cain did. Walking in the ways of the disobedient. Look at verse 3. We too all, Paul didn't say some of y'all, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Friend, I don't care if you were raised in church or saved in prison. You were born dead in sin. You actively engaged in sin and are under the wrath of God. You lived according to the flesh and carried out fleshly desires. You thought depraved Lamech thoughts, and you did depraved Lamech things. And if you look at Lamech in this passage and scowl, if you say, what a joker, what an idiot Lamech was, I say to you, you are Lamech. Like Nathan said to David, you are the man. Every single one of us is a rebel against a holy God. Every single one of us did what we wanted according to the prince of the power of the air, and we are guilty of the same sin as Lamech, children of wrath, under condemnation. And if you are here and have never repented and turned to Christ, you are still under that wrath. And I know that some here are. You say, how do you know that? You don't know my heart. No, but I know what the Bible says. And the Bible says that on the day of judgment, many will say to Christ, Lord, Lord, didn't I, do, didn't I run VBS as a kid? And Christ will say to him, depart from me, I didn't know you. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You want to talk about a verse that should keep the elders of this church awake at night? It's that. Are we doing our responsible thing in telling you that if you do not flee from the wrath of God, you are under his wrath? Look at verse 4 and 7, though. This is where it gets good. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that, in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is our good news. This is our good news. That God is rich in mercy and that he makes us alive. It doesn't say he throws us a life ring. It says he makes us alive. In his great love, he makes Christians who are dead in trespasses and sin, who are, are doing Lamech and Cain things, alive unmerited grace, undeserved grace. Nothing we could do to earn it. Because of your inability and my inability to come to Him, He comes to us. Look at verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. 
It is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. So he does not save us because of our works. Is a Christian to do good works? Yes, we'll talk about that in a minute. You'll hear that from the pulpit. But we are not saved by our works. We are not justified by our works. We can never work hard enough to earn our justification. We can never pay off the debt that we owe. That debt damns us to hell, and Christ foots the bill for Christians. Christ is the one who pays that debt that I incurred. And all those who come to him, he pays it. How you say, how do I come from? It says God decides. It says in there that God makes alive. How do I come to him? You tell me to repent, and yet the Bible says that God decides, I'm so confused, what do I do? I ask you this, friend, as you're sitting here today, do you hate your sin? Not do you hate the consequences, but do you hate your sin? When you cut someone off and they cuss at you and you cuss back, do you hate the fact that that welled up from within you? Do you hate the fact that you fail as a husband or fail as a wife? Do you hate your sin? And when you hate your sin and when you look at who you are and when you say, I'm a depraved wretch, when you look at that and say, ah, I'm a failure, not, not, you know, no, I'm pretty good. I sang in choir most of my life. I led VBS. That, that's the opposite of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who really says, I deserve wrath. Do you hate your sin? And with that, do you see the beauty of Christ? Do you desire Christ? Do you wish to honor Him with your life? Friend, if you have that there, it would not be there if God did not put it there. And so if you've never trusted Christ and you see here the, the wretchedness of your life and you look at these verses and say, I, I, I want that, I want to honor Christ, I think Christ is beautiful. Friend, you are commanded by God's Word to turn and repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Confess your sin. Flee to Him now. And when those who are in Christ do, they are eternally secure. They could not earn their salvation. They cannot lose their salvation. Christ will not lose one of His sheep. Those who are in Christ have God's Spirit within them. It seals them. Again, this is not like a Ziploc sealing. This is a brand. And God puts His brand on those of His elect and says, this one's mine. He has my spirit. He will not fall away. And that spirit begins to sanctify the believer and begins to reverse those effects of the fall. And once we are saved, we are saved for good works. Finally, look at the last verse here. Verse 10. We are His worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So if we are in Christ, we are called to do good works that God has prepared before the foundation of the world to mortify our sin, to serve His kingdom, to serve His church, to do the things that honor Him. You know, as Baptists, we like to talk about the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? We go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, <clears throat> teaching them to obey. And remember that Christ is always with us. Teaching them to what? Obey. Obedience is a part of our Christian life that we can't do without God first working in us. Friends, our problem is sin. 
Modernity was going to fix the world through progress, through education, through technology, through stuff, through self-help, a more comfortable life. Post-modernity wants to save us. Well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because one value system isn't better than another. If it's good for you, just do it. Whatever fix you think you need, take it. Marxism is going to save us through a communist utopia, but friends, we read in God's Word, the only way we are saved, the only way we are fixed is Christ. The answer to depravity is Christ. So friends, as we wrap up today, I was telling the elders this morning, before you get nervous, I'm not going to give an altar call. But we cannot look at a passage like these two and just sing a song and go eat lunch. And so friends, we're going to take the next few minutes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to bow your head. And I'm not going to ask you to come front or fill out a card. But we're going to take the next few minutes to reflect on what we have just read and to pray. And if you need to repent and believe the gospel, friend, please do. And for those of you who have sin in your life you need to repent of, please repent now. May we be a church of repentance. Eternal God, Father, you are holy. You are the creator of everything that is or ever will be, eternal, without beginning, without end. We are finite. Grass that is here today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace. A wisp of smoke that thinks far more highly of ourselves than we should. Born rebels, active rebels against you and your word. Father, we confess that we are rebels. We confess that we fall short. God, we confess that we do not do as we ought according to your word, Father, and we bring our sins to you. God, I pray for those that are hearing my voice now, that are here in this room in Ketchikan, Alaska, that have never truly repented and believed God, I pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would grant them mercy, God, that they would turn to you. Father, I pray for our church as a whole that as we continue to go forward in this, in this city, in this, in this part of your creation, God, that we would be faithful. God, that our hearts and our minds, you would work in them to such that we would desire good works, that we would not shrug off good works and live for ourselves. But Father, like New England and in the 16th century God or the 18th century God, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would revive this church, that you would revive this community, that you would glorify yourself. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.